Help keep Kinks and Beats daily ad-free and receive bonus content early with a contribution of 20 cents per episode. Visit herohabit.com slash shop for more information. Welcome to Kinks and Beats Daily. This is a bonus episode number two, uh, where we're going to talk today about Preservation Act 1 by the Kinks, the whole album. And today I am joined by listener and fellow A's fan, so obviously I'm in smart company, Nick Alpers. Hey. Welcome, Nick. Thank you very much for the invitation, Tony. I'm delighted to be here. It'll be fun. Um, So Preservation Act 1 was released November 16th, 1973. It was mostly recorded at Conk Studios um, between June and September of 73. Did not chart in the UK. Only broke the top 200 um, by peaking at 177 in the US. And there were some singles off of it, sort of. Uh, in the United States, we had one of the survivors backed by Scrap Heap City, which was released and then quickly uh, canceled. And as I talked about in our episode for Scrap Heap City, the version on this single as the B-side has Ray on lead vocals and is a bluesier song. Um, but he pulled it back, changed it, and then it got released on Preservation Act 2. And again, I call out to anybody that's got that 45. I'd love to hear a better version of it. Um, Then we had Sitting in the Midday Sun, backed with one of the survivors in the UK. Uh, In the United States, that uh, single was backed by Sweet Lady Genevieve. Neither charted. And we had in the UK, Sweet Lady Genevieve, as the A-side, backed with Sitting in My Hotel, which was from the previous album, did not chart. That may be my favorite Kinks single of all time. Um, talk about two underrated songs that both could have been hits, but no, neither were. Uh, and so there was no chart for the album, no charting for any of the singles. All right. So what's your history with this album, Nick? Well, my history with this album is that I, just to sort of back up, I actually grew up uh like in the seventies in a household with a bunch of Beatles records. So I listened to all the original Beatles records, just kind of the musical background of my youth with my older brother. And for some reason I have never actually asked, maybe I should, I don't know if my mom would remember. There was a copy of Arthur in my family's musical collection. No idea. I have no idea where it came from. So one day I was probably like 11 or 12. I listened to that and it completely blew me away. That was, I knew, you know, the sort of standard, half dozen or so, you know, kink songs that you would know just listening to FM radio in the 70s that were on like AOR rotation. Um, But that was the album that converted me to like being a huge kinks fan. And I started luckily going down to record stores in Berkeley at the time, like Rasputin, just, well, I'll try getting the albums that seemed to come from about the same time. And luckily, Arthur's right in the middle of this amazing run of brilliant albums. So everything I was buying was another brilliant album. And I just thought, okay, this is the greatest band I've ever heard. Eventually, at some point, I don't know exactly when, I you know, added Preservation Act 1 to my collection. And I'm pretty sure when I first listened to it, I thought, okay, yeah, this isn't the greatest thing I've ever heard. Um, there were a couple songs on it that I definitely responded to immediately. Sweet Lady Genevieve is undeniably a brilliant song. I love Cricket. I think it's a hilarious and wonderful song. Other songs just didn't quite grab me, so I probably didn't put it much in my rotation. But over the years, I've kind of gone back to it a couple times. And my personal sense of what's good 
and occasionally brilliant and really interesting in this album has increased a lot. It's probably the album of the Kinks that um, has gone up the most in my estimation of it between first listening to it and now. And I think it's uh, it's an album with a fairly broad range of assessments. There are some people who think it's terrible. John Mendelssohn, who wrote that Kinks Chronicles book and I think helped put together the album, basically totally hates the album. Um, John Savage, who wrote the like authorized biography from the 70s, says that um, it fails as a whole. This is his way of putting it because what was once implied by a line I'm reading here, a guitar phrase, a gesture or a mood is now explained to death. Um, and I don't think he's completely wrong, but I think it's flawed, but still pretty wonderful in a lot of places. And I think it's an interesting one to talk about because it also relates backwards and forwards to a whole lot of other songs and concerns that sort of flow throughout the whole kinks canon, so to speak. So at the time, I agree with you about a lot of that. And I don't know that this one has increased in my appreciation. I It's because I had already kind of gone through most of my kink stuff by the time I got to this one. So I, I liked it immediately and I've kind of continued to like it. But at the time, um, Melody Maker said the influences of the Who's Tommy abound and distract from this album. That said, there are some Kinks gems, a pretty good, if somewhat hackneyed storyline, and enough good music to swell the ranks of the Kinks Preservation Society. Um, it was also called the most ambitious and wide-ranging Kinks record yet. I don't totally agree with that. Um, and is already a stage nearer sounding like a play than a record. As a set, it seems strangely disjointed too in terms of plot, but this may be resolved when Act 2 reaches us. Preservation Act 1 contains some lovely songs, the familiar and lovely blend of gentleness and raunch that kept the kinks so good, and some fine playing notable in the wide variety of piano styles by John Gosling. As a kinks album, it's fine. I just don't feel that preservation adds up to the sum of its parts yet. I think there was a lot of um, a lot of anticipation that Preservation Act 2 was going to kind of salvage Preservation Act 1 and... and as we look back on it now, Preservation Act 2, I cannot defend as much as I can can, can defend um, Act 1. Yeah, I, but, I agree with you on that. <laughs> so it's got some mixed reviews. Uh, it was originally intended to be a double album. And I think it works as a single album and, I th- and essentially ended up being a triple album because Preservation Act 2 is a double with a ton of filler on it. Um, but I think this album works as a single album, as a kind of sequel to Village Green Preservation Society. And what made Vill- Village Green a good concept album is that the subject matters of the song were nostalgic, right? The whole album is about nostalgia. Where he loses me in part on Preservation Act 1 and in total on Act 2 is trying to create um, an actual narrative. The songs work best, and I think of this on all concept albums, is they work best when it's a theme, an overarching, like Lola works as a concept album because it's all about the recording industry. And Everybody's in Showbiz works because it's about touring and the life on the road and all that. This one mostly works 
because it's about nostalgia and kind of looking back at the nostalgia from an older standpoint than they were when they did Village Green. But now he's getting into Act Two, soap opera, um, schoolboys in disgrace, where he's getting a narrative and the songs start to suffer by trying to squeeze that narrative into it. And I think side A of this album is practically a perfect follow-up to Everybody's in Showbiz, which is an album I adore. Side A doesn't have all of the uh, where they're trying to start developing a story into it. And I think it works best. Side A, I think, is perfect kinks. Side B starts to get a little bit more. We can go back and forth with with each individual song on whether it's worthy or not. But yeah, I, let's start talking I, about I, that. I think that um, I agree with you on that. I think there's two kind of concepts that I usually keep in mind at looking at this stuff. One is I, I totally agree with you that the, the earlier albums you're talking about are mostly framed through like character studies. Um, and there's a little bit of that in here, but there is a lot of that plot stuff. And that gets even more extreme on Preservation Act 2, where he just punts and starts having all the radio interruptions because he wants to have all this plot and doesn't know how to turn into a song. Um, and that stupid trumpet line. Is, <laughs> yeah, it's bad. That's, that's a whole other, right, that's a separate podcast. Yeah. The other thing that's right. interesting to me is that the previous, the, the, the concept albums that led up to this were all totally grounded in a very specific real world. Right. So you've got Arthur, which is literally about his and, and Dave's family. It's adapted. It's not their actual true story because um, of who moves in the story to Australia. But it's really about their family, like real people are, call, are talking about. As you say, Lola is really about Ray and Dave's experiences in the music business and literally name checks their managers in the money go round. Um, Muswell Hillbillies is about their neighborhood in, in sort of the working class in North London and also name checks real people. Um, a couple songs mentioned Rose, and then everybody, everybody's in show business is actually about what it's like for them being on the road. So these are all very grounded in reality. And then you get to the Preservation Project, which is basically starring their kind of Fantasyland series, right? Where the next four albums are about this imagined world. Um, one of the interesting things to me, though, is that it's also this album also includes some of Ray's most personal songs that really are clearly about him, and he's already started being interested in this question of reality and unreality, like unreal reality on the previous album and what identity means. So even though this is getting off into fantasy land, there are still these moments where he is dragged back into the real world. And that's one of the interesting things to me about, about the album overall. Yeah. I hadn't actually, that's a good point that I hadn't considered the, the distinction between the, the autobiographical stuff and then the totally, fantastical stuff that's a good um i hadn't considered that but that is the break that and that that breaks from everybody's in show business to this album that line is drawn yeah um so the song the album opens with morning song it's a two minute and one second instrumental prelude that um pretty obviously is trying to like recreate uh greg's pier gint suite which was the morning song for every cartoon ever made from 1940 forward um, with some humming and some, you know, orchestration and everything. It's fine. I don't have a problem with this. It kind of establishes that this is a concept album because you wouldn't open. There's no, there's no world where the kinks are doing just a normal album 
of 14 songs or whatever, and this is your opening track. Yeah, it's totally different. You know, unless it's a concert. Yeah, it's completely different from the opening songs of the previous albums. Yeah. No comparison. And I mean, honestly, if I mean, if the first like hint would be just the cover of the album has like 15 people on it. And there's this big sort of um, propaganda poster of Ray, but Ray's not even the the tuba player is in the front of the group of people. So something weird is going on here. (laughs) It's the basic message. It's not a normal Kinks album by the standards leading up to it. Yeah. Yeah. And it is worth noting that the album does have, a ton of horns and female backing vocals. And there are a lot of people on this and it's been referred to as like an original cast recording. Cause there are, and some songs more than others do sound like Broadway or West end. Um, Absolutely. Songs from that era. So then it goes from there into daylight, which uh, clocks in at three twenty. classic Kings tune for me. Uh, this would have worked well on several different albums and, actually serves as a decent album opener as like a proper album opener. So like I think of morning song as the prelude and daylight is actually the opening of the album. Yeah. I mean, it, it, uh, right. Morning is the prelude. Then when daylight starts, the curtains open and the right. lights on stage go up and there's this massive cast of characters walking across, uh, across the stage with Ray playing this, character of the tramp catalog cataloging everybody um there's a lot of cataloging in this song this like like the village green like the song the village green preservation society there's is just a catalog there's a lot of cataloging songs um on this album and i and you can see while you're i can see while i'm listening to it what what it would look like on stage having all these characters walking across in a lot of respect and i i've spent nearly 20 years making a living doing theatrical pit work like playing in the in the bands for these broadway shows or whatever in the bay area and in a lot of ways this album works as a stage uh musically as a stage show better than any of the other albums that he's done he's he actually constructs these songs even if it's only him singing he constructs a lot of these songs for multiple voices and actors and characters and all that kind of stuff. And the way he flies themes in and out of some of the songs, this is actually could have been easily adapted into a stage show more than Schoolboys and, and act two or showbiz even, or not show uh, soap opera. I think this one is constructed from a musical standpoint, more like what he's going for. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at the, at reviews, which are quoted in lots of Beatle uh, kinks, uh, biographies, about this about the tour they did of preservation act one basically it gets everybody thought it was great what they would do is they would they would do a first half of the show just playing kink songs as the kinks then they would take an intermission and they'd come back and do preservation and there's all these glowing reviews of how fantastic it was so yeah i mean i think it really was a very successful live idea and show um uh, they i think they had some challenges making sure that that could get onto a single LP. But, you know, that's the kinks. That's the kinks. There's always a catch with everything. Well, and it's funny, like, there are shows, like, I've played the show Rent a 
ton of times. I've done a, a five or six different productions of that show. And I love playing that show. As a guitar player, there's a lot to do. The music's, you know, it's good rock and roll, Broadway rock and roll stuff. I can't listen to that soundtrack if you force me to. There's like two songs I can listen to. Some things don't translate to re- record without the visual aspect. And I think this is a prime example. When you see the difference between reviews of the album and then reviews of the tour, like you were saying, this just, it doesn't necessarily translate. And the best songs on this album are the the couple that that stand alone, separate from the concept, quote unquote, mm-hmm. you know, like the next song, Sweet Lady Genevieve, which um, some people would argue is one of Ray's best songs. It's a, it's a, a lost kinks masterpiece, but it actually opens. If you listen to it, that harmonica intro is the main theme of daylight. Daylight, right. He's quoting the previous song in this one. So it's very linked to the album, but it stands alone as a, as a little, just a pop song yeah. all by itself, which is cool. And it's linked to the album thematically, but it, I mean, this is basically him singing a song to Raza. Um, right. And it was just at this time that Raza left with the kids sort of when, when this is all happening. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, st- this is obviously a song sung in character as this character, the tramp. Um, but it's also could just stand alone as Ray actually singing a song uh, to Raza apologizing for all the crap he's done. And this is one of the few Ray Davies compositions that you can actually legitimately call a love song. It's a, it's a fractured love song, you know, like he's trying to get her back, but there's not a lot of tunes in this catalog that are just straight up love songs. Yeah. Most of, I mean, you know, people sometimes refer to days that way, although that's a lot more oblique um, and could refer to almost any situation. Um, But yeah, this is really a very straightforward one. And I think that it, um, it, some of it is him playing, I think, with these questions of, of identity that really play out throughout the whole 70s, certainly in this middle period, starting at least from everybody's in showbiz through, through, let's say, schoolboys. Um, mm-hmm. who, who am I doing this stuff on stage? Um, and he, you know, he's, he almost has to get into this character, the tramp, to, sing this extremely straightforward um straight ahead love song of regret and loss and love but he's not technically singing it as himself i think that's kind of a british thing too that you hear it all the time you know when paul talks about let it be you know and 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 his like feelings about with his mother and everything and he was like it was probably subconsciously about his mom, mm-hmm. but you know, he, he's, there's a quote where he's like, we're not supposed to talk about our feelings about these kinds of things, you know, as, and I think that's, you know, raise of that same generation and, and upbringing and everything. So I think taking that character is the only way you're going to get Ray's, you know, honest, heartfelt handling of his impending divorce. You know, she yeah. left him right before the sessions for this album by, con- by um, contrast 
his brother Dave is exactly the opposite. It seems like half mm-hmm. of his catalog in the 60s was him just singing these songs about the relationship that his parents and his girlfriend's parents broke up. Yeah. Um, and that stuff is completely straightforward, um, not hidden behind any identity, song after song after song. Um, so, you know, there's all possibly that's part of the, the complicated relationship that's always been there between them and brothers. They've obviously always been very different people. Um, it's part of what makes the combination so powerful. Uh, but yeah, I agree that Ray has this long history of, um, diving into characters. Um, I think it's part of what makes him really brilliant. Um, so often as a songwriter is that he is very, very good at understanding other perspectives and trying to inhabit them, but then he loses himself. Um, as well. And he writes about that constantly, uh, of losing himself through, through exploring these characters. So then from Sweet Lady Genevieve, we go to There's a Change in the Weather. Quick little three-minute tune. This is a quirky song and feels like it could be a leftover from Everybody's in Showbiz. Um, just the style of their playing has kind of got that funky guitar intro, but I've always liked this song. Yeah, I think it's great. It's one of those ones that, again, is the opposite of a character study. This is really a sort of cast of characters mm-hmm. uh, uh, song. Again, um, I think it's. I think musically, it's a lot of fun to listen to. Um, yeah, I enjoyed a lot too. So we're so far. We're four songs in. We got morning song, daylight, sweet lady Genevieve. There's a change in the weather for being quote unquote one of the Kinks' worst albums. We haven't hit anything yet that I'm going to skip, you know? Um, now we get to track five, Where Are They Now? I personally have a hard time with songs that reference themselves, and he starts this song with, I'll sing a song about. Um, but luckily, he doesn't lean on that too much. This feels like it's an attempt to write a sequel to Celluloid Heroes, though. Mm-hmm. You know, where he's kind of, the way it's it's, you know, it's just a list of names and stuff like that. Personally, though, I'm not a big fan of Celluloid Heroes. I think this song is better. It's like he took that concept and kind of improved upon it musically. Um, it might be a hair too long. It's only three and a half minutes, but it, because of the tempo and the and the lyrical content, I kind of do start drifting. My mind starts to drift during this song. But there, it's a beautiful melody and and a nice arrangement by the band. I think. Yeah, I, th- I agree with you that it sounds like it could be off everybody's in showbiz, starting with. Gosling's piano sounds like something off of everybody's in showbiz. I think that in a way I see it as sort of matched with the village green preservation society. It's sort of a, I mean, that song that the opening track of the album is sort of cataloging um, sort of culture. You talked about as nostalgic cataloging the series of uh, nostalgically powerful cultural touchstones and, and saying, we're going to save these. And this song is asking you know, is anything savable? It's really a, a much less optimistic version of that. Um, it's all about sort of doubt. Where did everybody go? What happened? Why has it all been lost? Um, and I think interestingly that the the end of the song where he sort of ends, which seems like a bit of a throwaway, the sort of rock and roll still lives on, which kind of feels just sort of like a gesture, is a lot like Can't Stop the Music at the end of Soap Opera basically the same kind right. of just gesture like oh well there's still rock music um which you know once you've listened to to lola you kind of the whole album you kind of wonder is that a good thing um 
because it doesn't sound like it's always a lot of fun for rock and roll to solo on. Um, but yeah, I think this is one of those, those songs that looks backward and looks forward through the King's catalog. There's a lot of things he's clearly interested in and trying to work out. He didn't work them all out in, on the village green album and he still hasn't figured them all out in preservation and this song. So he's going to keep playing with them for a few more years. Mm-hmm. Then from there we go to the side, a closer, one of the survivors, uh, this is a decent rocker. It's the return of Johnny Thunder, uh, which I actually we just released the Johnny Thunder episode yeah. a few days ago, I think, um, as of the time of this recording. It's a good use of the horn section, I think, on this one. I, this is the most like R and B horn section that he's used. You know, it's it's it was the style back then. At this point. Um, uh, maybe the same year, actually. Elton John has the Tower of Power horn section on uh, the Caribou album. Uh, Paul's using a horn section a ton on uh, uh, Venus and Mars. like, But they're all using it like an, an R&B horn section. And then Ray comes in, you know, an album or two ago with a Dixieland band. Um, this is the most that the horn section is used in the style of the times, I think. And it works. I think it sounds great on this one. Uh, yeah. It's not my favorite, not my favorite track, but I don't hate it by any stretch. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and again, go ahead. One of the things that I really think is, is fun about this album is that that horn section, the Mike Cotton sound gets used in so many different ways. So as you mentioned, morning sounds like they're sitting in an orchestra pit, um, introducing a musical. Um, this song does sound like an R and B song. And then the very next song we're going to talk to is just them as a trad jazz band. Um, so even on this one, not particularly long single LP album, he's taking this, you know, they, they've, they've been involved more and more over the last few albums, but they really have a lot of free scope here to, to move tonally in a bunch of different directions. And it works for each of the songs. I always find that funny too, because you listen to the, or read the reviews from the time and they'll call this, uh, this album is inconsistent. Right, because because it has a rocker and an instrumental and a top forty pop song and a vaudeville tune and all that kind of stuff. Meanwhile, you flash back to nineteen sixty six, and Revolver is praised for having a country song and a rocker and an Indian song and a ballad. Right, so it's like I've never understood where the line gets drawn between inconsistent and. Uh, a varied sound, you know, and this one constantly gets that inconsistent label, but it's like, it's not inconsistent. The lack of consistency is what makes it a fun album to listen to. I don't want to hear you really got me 14 times. I want to hear you really got me and, you know, sunny afternoon, like different things. And village green was by this same definition, inconsistent but is regarded as a masterpiece. So I don't understand where the line gets drawn, but I love the fact that it goes from, like you said, traditional jazz to rock to R and B to, you know, there's moments in money and corruption. I'm your man or not. No, that's a different one. Um, Well, I guess one of the survivors where it kind of shifts into more bluesy sound. Like I like that quote unquote inconsistency and 
I've never understood why the kinks so regularly get chastised for it, while the Beatles were praised for it, while Queen gets praised for it. You know, like all these other bands, it's an asset, not a detriment. Yeah, that I don't I don't know. If someone can come up with an explanation of how those opinions get formed in some coherent way, I'd love to hear it. It I I, yeah. I agree with you about that. And one of the things that's also that I think is really noticeable about this song is Dave's vocals. Um, because he breaks in in the middle. Um, as the voice of Johnny Thunders. And I think it's a great little piece of that song. Um, I think it's interesting, again, sort of in the context of the Kinks' career and the relationship between the two brothers to sort of imagine Ray giving Dave that role. And this is also the first of a series of albums that doesn't end until Misfits, where Dave doesn't have a song of his own that he wrote and sings on the album. Everything from from this point, I mean, there's... Um, you on the previous album, there's "You Don't Know My Name," which, by the way, I think is just a fantastic song. Um, I love that song by Dave. Um, but then starting with this album, and I don't know what five albums forward, there's no Dave. You know, since we found out since his he recently released that album, Decade, we know what he was doing at Conk Studios in all of these years. None of that stuff got released as a Kink song. Man, he was he was putting out it was, solid, or not putting it out, but he was recording yeah, solid tunes. Yeah, he was doing really good stuff, and um, you know, he he uh, there'd been a sort of weird. I mean, it's it's again interesting in this sort of context that he had a couple of fantastic contributions on Lola um, and Strangers is just one of the greatest songs that Kinks ever did. Um, and then you know, Muswell Hillbillies is is he, he you can hear his um, his vocals, but those are Ray songs. And then he gets a song on, on everybody's showbiz, and then it's just the Ray show. Um, so, but I, it, it's definitely noticeable to me listening to the song when you hear Dave break in with, you know, I'm that sort of I'm one of the survivors bit in the middle. It you it, it that stands out. That's a sort of a mm-hmm. the vocals suddenly change um, from Ray to Dave, and I, I think that's really effectively done in the song. So, so we're done with side A, and it's. Pretty solid side A. Like I said, this is, for me, a perfect Kinks concept album because he's not pushing a ton of actual plot down our throats. He's Right now, we're still getting like snapshots and, like you keep saying, cataloging of these characters and situations and stuff. And then we flip it over, and side B opens with Cricket, which is one of the most British songs (laughs) the Kinks ever... Even by Kinks standards, this is a very... British song also happens to be, I have a soft spot for it. One of my favorite tracks on this. I I love this song and it's, uh, it is a, uh, you know, if you were going to introduce someone to like, what, what are the kinks about? This would be a sort of um, off center way to introduce them, but there really weren't other bands and there, you're not going to find other bands who were putting this kind of song out, especially a, a band that did, you really got me. Um, this is a quintessentially kink song to me. I love it. Um, I think that the arrangement is perfect for what the song is getting across. Um, and one of the things that's most that, that I that I love about this in terms of Ray's sort of pastiche songs like this is I think Ray is usually underappreciated as a lead vocalist. People talk constantly about what a genius songwriter he is, which he is undeniably. Um, people don't talk as much about him as a lead vocalist. And I think that, 
uh, he really is a fantastic lead vocalist, especially in this whole period in the middle. One of the things that he's great at, and this song exemplifies it to me, is that he rarely does a sort of simple, straightforward voice. Um, there are a lot of songs where he'll be expressing an idea or singing from a perspective. And while he's inhabiting that and doing it sincerely, he's also kind of sounding like there's a sort of a critique of it, too. So I think an example of that is Victoria which is not actually a send-up. Like, if you listen to it, I think it's a mistake to think of that song as a send-up. I think he genuinely is expressing an appreciation for why you would feel that way. Um, and I think uh, another one that's like that for me um, would be This Is Where I Belong, which is actually, I think, less secure in the idea that it's expressing or that it expresses, like, on the written page than it actually sounds when he's singing it. And on this one... What is, I mean, like this, like ridiculously extended metaphor is kind of absurd and laughable, but I think Ray actually is kind of sympathetic to it. And the song starts off sort of quiet and subdued. And the the line when he delivers, you know, it has honor, it has character and it's British. It sounds like a total send up, like it's all delivered tongue in cheek. But then as the song goes on, he gets more and more into it. His vocals get bigger and bigger. The band sort of reaches this crescendo and by the end it's just this huge you know like song he's i think he's really into it he's actually sort of persuading himself that this is a an appropriate metaphor that he's buying into that life is just like cricket um and i think that there's that's something that i think is particular about about ray i think that's a kind of vocal that he's really brilliant at delivering and there's not a whole lot of other people i think who could who could deliver this kind of song and not make it sound like a total sort of satire of something that you're just thinking of as ridiculous or make it sound kind of intrinsically silly. Yeah. And I agree with you about his lead vocals. And this song is a perfect example of how he uses his voice styling also as an instrument, right? So like when he does certain things to evoke a tonal, quality or a timbre of his voice or you know he couldn't sing this song straight it's not going to sound i think it's not going to sound authentic if he just sings it straight he has to have those you know oh great googlies and all that kind of stuff to make it sound authentic you know because he's not singing this as ray davies he's singing this as a character and he's using the other characters and like you said it's it's making the point that he's trying to make by using those vocal inflections. And sometimes it doesn't always work. There are sometimes that like he, he's got one style where he uses a lot of uh, fast vibrato that rarely works for me. But in this case, the whole song hinges on that vocal delivery and the, the characterization that he's using. And I, I kind of agree with you. It can come off tongue in cheek at first, but when you really dig into the meaning of this song and and the content of this song, I don't think it's tongue in cheek at all. It is a straight, uh, authentic thing that he's just using a character voice because that's how this song needs to play. You can't sing straight rock and roll vocals when you've got a tuba providing your bass line. It just doesn't work. You know? Right. Right. 
Oh, absolutely. And, and and again, this is not, I don't, I mean, there, maybe there were other bands that I'm not familiar with that were doing this kind of thing back then, but um, this really is like a quintessentially kinks sound. And also, and maybe this is sort of getting into a larger conversation of, of recorded music technology, but I don't think it's a mistake that this is what happens. You, so you've listened to side one, then you have to go up there. You have to move the tone arm, or maybe you've got one that moves automatically. Then you have to flip the record over and start again. So there's this pause and it's not just flowing straight through. There's a pause and you're listening to this album and you're like, Oh, I wonder what this is going to be next. And then out of absolutely nowhere, you get this completely bizarre sort of song that sounds partly like traditional jazz, partly like, you know, he was watching guys and dolls and listened to sit down, mm-hmm. you're rocking the boat and went, Oh, that's a good idea. Why don't I do one of those? Um, completely out of the blue. And I think the, there's a sort of a, uh, to me, like a sort of hilarious surprise when you flip this album over and this is the song that, that pops up as the next thing. Because one of the survivors, which closes side A, literally talks about just straight ahead rock and roll without any sophistication. And a list of it's and, a catalog of Dion and the Belmonts, Johnny and the Hurricanes. Right. Basically like, I mean, that song is kind of, not to skip back, but it's sort of like another version of last of the steam powered trains. It's sort of like mm-hmm. playing that out that idea again. Um, and now this is even going further back. And I'm the, I'm the last of the trad jazz band, you know, and I think this is a, this is a, a sequencing issue that I think is kind of like Abbey road. The side split on Abbey road is pretty good when you're listening on vinyl it's genius when you listen to it on cd which was you know 25 30 years after the fact this one i think is the same way where you know abbey road you end side a with the loud bombastic i want you she's so heavy and then go to your record player move the arm turn it over and you get the quiet here comes the sun so that's like a nice little treat for you but on the cd when it's just back to back and i don't need to have that break in there i think that's a genius Mm. sequencing thing to end this big the the big you know crescendo build of i want you that just stops suddenly as if the tape player turned off into the acoustic guitars is brilliant transition this works in the same way where you've got this 1950s pastiche of one of the survivors that like you said is name checking simple, sophisticated, unsophisticated rock and roll, and then to go in immediately into a tuba Dixieland intro with his overly heightened British accent and all that kind of stuff. I think this works even better on CD or streaming, however you're listening to it now than it did back then. But, you know, like you said, but it was, it was kind of like, uh, I don't want to say a middle finger because it's not, but it's like, it's like, Oh, I hope you enjoyed one of the survivors. Cause now we're going to give you this very heightened English traditional jazz Dixieland kind of thing. I, I, I love that sequence between those two yeah, songs. Absolutely. And it's funny that you mentioned Ray, uh, guys and dolls. Cause I actually put in my notes, this song is Ray fully embracing the theatrical sound. Yeah. Then we go into money and corruption slash. I am your man which we talked about before we recorded now is a seven minute and one second song on the CDs. Uh, if you go on Spotify, it is seven minutes on the LP though. You were talking about it's six minutes without, um, 
the instrumental break with the organ. Yeah, exactly. It's a six. I mean, all that's, um, I don't know if it's available for streaming. I think like if you go to like YouTube or whatever, you're going to hear the seven minute long version, but on the LP, it's the same sort of two songs connected together you know, um, as money and corruption slash I am your man, but John Gosling's, I guess it's like a Hammond organ break or something just doesn't exist. That just isn't part of the song. Um, I'm not sure why they would have done that. Uh, you know, I, I kind of get the impression through their history, there was an awful lot of tinkering and, mm-hmm. you know, sort sort of going back and forth. And, and this was the, I, was this the first conch album or the second conch album? Um, they, they're, they have their own place to have control over and to, to play around with. So maybe the temptation was there was to like, let's use our new tools. Um, I think it's the first, because I think sitting in the midday sun was the first song they recorded in there. Okay. There you go. If I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a really good song. I mean, in terms of sort of like precedence, the, the very beginning sort of echoes Shangri-La to me a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. And it's got a similarly sort of, somewhat epic feel to it this is definitely not one of those character study ones i mean it's this sort of chorus of the people with a capital p i guess um Mm -hmm. uh so and and i i think it's interesting actually that even this early on you know ray released that choral album which is a whole bunch of songs that weren't originally in a sort of a chorale kind of sound you know re-recorded um and on this album he's got this big chorus and enjoys playing with and this is one of the ones where you've got sort of more intricate um, arrangements of voices. And uh, um, so even at this phase early on there, you know, he's the producer. It's, it hasn't been shell for a couple of albums. So (laughs) this is what, this is the arrangement. Let's bring everybody who's on that front album cover in and everybody's going to be doing something. Yeah. I just looked it up. Um, Some of the album was recorded before they, Got into conch. Sitting in the midday sun is the first song recorded at their studio. Interesting. Um, and then a lot of the, most of the album was either completely recorded at conch, or they had some stuff that they'd been working on prior that they finished or redid at conch. So this is their first interesting conch album. And maybe also, uh, I mean, they, there was the dispute about whether this was going to be a double album. How it was going to be released? Mm-hmm. I could imagine maybe they shaved the song down to try to fit it into a double album format, and then they realized they were going to do a single LP and they didn't, they just had that ready to go. I also want to mention mixed drumming on this, which I think is also terrific. And yeah, I have that on my yeah, notes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. Uh, it's, it's, I mean the whole album, I, you know, um, this is a, a period when Mick was really doing amazing stuff. And, um, and this is one of those songs where as I listen to it, I'm thinking, wow, this is, this is definitely, you know, there, there's a, I think there's a possibility with some of the more, um, theatrical musical songs where it they might sort of drift a little bit or not feel like they belong on what in the end is still a rock and roll band's album but mick keeps that in line and it still sounds like rock and roll when he's the drummer i've 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 said it before i will probably say it a thousand more times over the course of this podcast mick avery is the most underrated drummer of his generation no the guy the guy was genius. Like he, the way he can effortlessly go from uh, a straight ahead rock to almost punk to heavy metal to jazz, like just the drum break in Princess Marina is a straight up jazz 
drum break. You know, like he's not a rock guy that can fake swing. He's a drummer that can play every style. And the fills he's doing on this song and the I, I think his drumming on uh, the actual track preservation is some of the best work he ever did too. Like he's just such a good drummer. Yeah. And I, I, I totally agree. There's, you know, Kinks fans all have always wonder, you know, in the end, what's the the status of the Dave and Mick relationship. And, but whatever that's been over the years, um, they did, they did amazing music together. Mm -hmm. So I feel on money and corruption in my notes, I felt like, Ray is imitating Zappa on this one hmm. and not necessarily, obviously not with the, well, I guess maybe a little bit with the the content with the money and corruption and the, the kind of political yeah. uh, undertones and all this stuff. But if you listen to the way he's recording some of the stuff where he's got, uh, I, th- I assume it's female vocals because they're used everywhere, but there are certain aspects of this song where it, f- it sounds like he's using um, varied tape speeds to get some of the high notes and the low notes and stuff, which Zappa did a lot. And then some of the time changes and stuff like that. I feel this song, I don't know how familiar you are with, with Zappa, but for me, this song could have easily been on We're Only In It For The Money. Interesting. Yeah. I'm not that familiar with Zappa, some, um, but yeah. certainly not like a Zappa file. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, that does, I mean, it's, it, you know, there definitely was a context for those kinds of like sort of uh, more complicated uh, concept albums, plot driven, concept driven and into fantasy (laughs) sort of fantasy scenarios. Um, Tommy being probably the most obvious of those. Um, And yeah, this is a, this is a, uh, you know, these are, he's doing complicated arrangements um, and, and, not simply structured songs on a lot of the songs in this album, which is another thing that keeps it interesting. I have to say. Mm-hmm. So, this- so this song is actually probably the one that I skipped the most. Um, well, maybe not, but up to this point, it's the one I've skipped the most. And I think it's because of the length. Uh, I'm on the hunt for this on vinyl. Mm-hmm. I'm, 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 I'm slowly building a kinks and Beatles vinyl collection. Cause I just got a turntable for Christmas and I haven't picked this one up yet. So maybe the six minute version would suit my needs better because I actually think I am your man. Beautiful song, but I rarely get to it because I just get so burnt out on the money and corruption part that, that kind of uh, it's, it feels like a pub song with that six, eight, da, 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 you know, and I just get bored with it and skip to here comes flash, which I often skip a lot too. decent rocker. That's our next song, by the way, here comes flash, decent rocker lyrics are a little bit, clumsy i think um because he's trying to deliver a story um and this one again is another one that i feel kind of treads into like early zappa era stuff um that you wouldn't expect from the kinks but yeah i I agree with that i mean i think that probably the song that i'm that i find least interesting and fun to listen to on on the album is here comes flash um i I don't I'm generally not someone who skips. And if I'm listening to it on a record player, I'm not going to get up and, or walk over and like, you know, pick up the needle and put it back down somewhere else. I'll listen to it. Um, I agree. I mean, I am your man. I think is a really good, I really like the, I am your man half as well as the money and corruption. I'm your man. And I like 
speaking again of Ray's vocal delivery, he starts with this incredibly flat sort of affectless um, delivery um, and then builds up into a much more expressive. I mean, it, it's he's making a rhetorical point, I think, about politics in a way or how he hears politics. Um, and I think that's very effective. There's a lot of songs in this album that sort of start a little bit quietly or slowly and then build up into big crescendos. Um, and here comes flash, I think is a little bit, I'm not sure, I'm not sure exactly what the point is there. It's nice to hear Dave singing, a, singing the lead. Um, the weird little dropouts where you have that sort of interplay. That's just the, the brass with the female backup singers. Mm-hmm. Um, that sounds very staged because, you know, if you see, especially if you look at the preservation act two album cover, you can see which characters back on act one were singing that stuff. You've got sort of the floozy. The floozies are in the background helping Dave introduce, of course, Ray playing Flash. Um, but yeah, that song doesn't, I don't think that's the most interesting song in the album. Put it that way. <laughs> Not by far. Um, I, I think there's a reason it's buried almost at the end of side two. Um, so that takes us to sitting in the midday sun which clocks in at three minutes and 47 seconds. So this is not a short song, but it does kind of go by, um, for me. And I mentioned this on the actual episode for this song specifically, this to me sounds like what village green preservation society would have sounded like had they been in a decent studio at the time. Mm -hmm. This, this feels like classic, um, mid late sixties era Ray Davies to me. Just the the way the band is arranged, the content of the song, the melody. Um, this feels like a classic Ray Davies song to me. Yeah, and I mean, actually, I've seen like interviews with Ray where he's described Village Green as they were just a bunch of demos and they really shouldn't have been released. That might have been him just being self-deprecating. But yeah, this sounds like a fully produced song. Um, and uh, I've always thought of it. I've Some reviewers sort of referred back to uh, Sitting by the Riverside off the Village Green album. I think of it as a sort of a weird way, sort of a response to sunny afternoon. Um, it's sort of an analogous situation. Here I am sitting around with the, 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 the character singing the song is sitting around sort of with nothing. Um, he even makes that reference towards the end of the song. I'd rather be a hobo than a rich man scared of losing all he's got. And that might actually be a sort of a, a more personal statement by Ray. And he would mm-hmm. want to let on at that time in his life, obviously. Um, but it's it's a sort of a sort of like a similar scenario to Sunny Afternoon from a different perspective. Um, and I think it's a terrific song. And it's one of these character songs that also sounds very personal to Ray. Yeah, he's he's not having to he's not having to uh, you know go very very far to get into the character for this song. And then that leads us to the album closer which is demolition. Um, I mentioned earlier, you know, Ray, this album would have translated uh, to stage better than any of the others. This song in particular, you know, even when he's doing the overlap vocals himself, if you hear this song, I can't help but see an entire cast of people. This is like the act one closer where you've got the entire cast out there. It's your big song. And there's a lot of inner, you know, interwoven lines and stuff like that. This is um, the most like a Broadway song, I think, on the on an album that is 
the most theatrical album to, to this point. I think this is the most theatrical song on the album. Absolutely. And, and it introduces the the hook of Salvation Road, which is the closer to Preservation Act 2. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that, you know, I, I was thinking about this listening early, just earlier today, doing one last listen through to the album. And I, it suddenly occurred to me, like, this song is almost like Ray responding to the vill- the song the village green preservation society like southern man being responded to by sweet home alabama this is basically coming up with like an ideological antithesis to village green Preser- preservation society and singing the song about destruction um and i think it works really well and there's other songs you know there's other songs that they were that they recorded in the previous years that are about basically i mean Muswell Hill is, is sort of all about this, this scenario. Here come the people in gray. Maybe some of the people in gray are sort of joining in on the chorus here. There's a song that wasn't released at all until and on one of the collections called Lavender Lane, which is a fascinating song in its own right. It's basically taking the melody of Waterloo Sunset and singing a song about gentrification. I think it's a brilliant song. But again, this is the same set of concerns. There's a neighborhood, it's being destroyed, but they're singing it from the perspective of the people doing the destroying. Um, and Dave seems really into this one. I have to say, I love, I love his vocal contribution yeah. Yeah. singing about, yeah. you know, the wonders of capitalism um, and everything. Uh, yeah. I think it's a very good crescendo for the album as a whole as well. Yeah. And then if you're on vinyl, that's the end of the album. Yep. And uh, if you are on Spotify or some of the CD reissues, you've got one more song called preservation. Um, which I guess we're supposed to believe isn't a stolen riff from Jimi Hendrix. I guess we're just supposed to ignore that. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that yeah, da, da, da. That's like a straight up Hendrix uh, riff. But it's a solid rocker. This song would have sounded good on Lola. Like it kind of has uh, a feel for that era, like a, maybe kind of like Rats, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then mixed drums on this one, unreal. Such good drumming on this this track. Yeah, it's a great song. I mean, I think that I've, you know, some reviewers I've seen dislike it because it basically is kind of like s- sung liner notes. Um, the the liner notes on like face to face kind of explain the story that kind of weaves in and out of that album about the rich guy who breaks up with his girlfriend and you know falls to ruin and loses his house. Um, this song is kind of, if you took a bunch of liner notes on the back, once upon a time in a faraway land, lived a villain called Flash and just putting it in a song. Um, so I think there's different, I mean, it's interesting that that wasn't part of the original design of this album to have a song that just laid out the plot. On the other hand, the fact that this song exists maybe freed the rest of the album from having to do all the plot work during the album. It's, it's probably easier from a, a sort of creative perspective like let's just do one song that's going to tell you what the story is and then once you have that then you'll just listen to the songs and be able to fill in the details mm-hmm. the opposite from the next album which didn't get that balance right despite the fact that there are a lot of terrific songs on act two um as well it makes you wonder if you take all the stuff from act one which is a single album and act two which is a double and take the best of both those albums and condense that into one single album. If preservation, if the preservation project wouldn't have been considered one of Ray's masterpieces, because there is enough good stuff on 
on uh, Act Two that you could replace the and and we just sat here and talked about Act One and there's not a ton of stuff here. You know, we rare, very rarely said anything negative about it, um, but there's enough stuff on Act Two that is of quality that would push out some of the stuff from Act One. You could have done. This could have extended the the Kinks masterpiece album, you know, from face to face, which I think is face to face to everybody's in show business. I actually count that one as a solid album. Too. Yeah, I do. This would have extended that from face to face to preservation had they done one album of both uh, acts, you know, condensed. Even though I know sequentially it wouldn't have worked, they hadn't recorded all of Act Two yet. But, you know, just if you're going to rewrite history and combine those two albums, those three platters into one disc, I think this could have been another fantastic Kinks album. Yeah, I agree. I, without debate. I, I, I'd have to, like, go through and spend some time listening to all the songs and stuff. I, it wouldn't, I, would, I would bet that you could put together a single LP of uh, the best of what's on Act 2, and it would be a really damn good LP. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, fitting those two together um, would be, you could definitely do that. You know, look, some of the dead weight on the album are all these radio interruption yeah. things. That was a concept they tried. It, not everything you're going to try is going to work. So, that, you know, that's fine. Um, but as far as this one is concerned, I mean, it, it, it is funny how the sort of consensus is, was like, wow, well, they, you know, they lost their magic. I think there's some desire to tell a narrative of, this band fighting and struggling against everything that the music industry threw at them from the band in the U S to their horrible original publishing deal and having to actually get paid for the music that they created. Um, all of that stuff that they went through, all of the struggles, um, mental illness, car crashes, everything. They finally, there's a narrative. I think that people kind of want to tell where they finally reach kind of their promised land they own their own studio, they have control, and then they just kind of the creative juices have been used up or something. And I know there's a temptation to tell that story, but and and part of it is the level of genius of the previous four or five years of music is hard to match by anyone. And it's not mm-hmm. just the albums that they released. It's about, I don't know, three or four albums worth of other music. Some of it was singles, some of it was B-sides, some of it never got released. Some of it, one of the songs uh, that was re- put out last year called time song comes from the same period that's a terrific song it literally i don't think anybody heard it outside of the band and and uh, you know other people close to them until like last year so some of it is in comparison to what they were putting out before but if you sort of clear yourself of, of that a little bit um and just sit down and listen to this album i think it really is a, a good album to listen to i really like it uh, there's a lot of stuff in here that's wonderful and there's as you were saying there's not a lot in here where I'm just like, oh God, can we please just get through this song? It's just, yeah. it's just, it just doesn't feel that way. They're all worth listening to. Now, I like to put these things in context of the times because I think I have a different appreciation for it because I'm younger. I wasn't even alive in 1973. I didn't get into the kinks until the end of high school, I think, in the late 90s. So it's like I'm not listening to this as I'm listening to other things from that era. I'm listening to everything from 1945 to 1999 at the same time. So I don't have this um, prejudice based on what was going on in the landscape. So to put it in context, so the Kinks release uh, Preservation Act 1 in 1973. P. 
Pink Floyd releases Dark Side of the Moon, arguably their masterpiece. Led Zeppelin, House of the Holy, arguably their masterpiece. David Bowie, Aladdin Sane, arguably his masterpiece. Elton John, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Uh, the Who, Quadrophenia. Stevie Wonder, Inner Visions. Uh, Paul McCartney, Band on the Run. Elton John again with Don't Shoot Me, I'm Only the Piano Player. Uh, Roxy Music has For Your Pleasure, which is not my favorite Roxy Music album. Uh, George Harrison with Living in the Material World. This is an incredible 73, I think, rivals 1969 as one of the best years in rock and roll music. There is so much great rock and roll music. Countdown to Ecstasy by Steely Dan. Let's Get It On by Marvin Gaye. Um, Red Rose Speedway by Paul McCartney, which I technically think is better than Band on the Run. There's so much good music coming out, and none of it sounds remotely like preservation. So it's easy to see how this one got lost. It's easy to see how if if I'm a music reviewer at Rolling Stone and my last few uh, uh, reviews were Countdown to Ecstasy, Dark Side of the Moon, and Inner Visions, preservation may not stack up in that context. But for me, looking back at it, you know, as someone who is taking it all in at once, the entire King's catalog at once, the entire Beatles catalog at once, the entire Floyd catalog at once. I'm listening to it, you know, without any kind of context to what else was going on. I, I can't make any, uh, any complaints about this album. It's a solid album from start to finish. Um, there are some dips in its quality, but you know, I, I have a playlist on Spotify of, when I don't want to listen to a full album, I have a Spotify playlist of just my favorite Kinks songs. And this album's pretty, you know, pretty uh, uh, represented on that playlist. And I can't say that for State of Confusion. Mm-hmm. You know, that album, that album to me, there's like two or three songs on it that I go back to regularly. But this album's pretty heavily uh heavily represented on that on that playlist that i've got yeah i would say to 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 folks listening um who are primarily beatles fans and are kind of yeah i'm you know sort of learning more about the kinks or interested in the kinks or kinks fans who don't have like the full complete like obsessive nerd collection of all of their albums or are primarily listening on like spotify or something um this is not and i don't think i mean it's interesting i started looking up reviews for some reason the pitchfork reviewer gives this a rating of 9.8 out of 10. Even I, I saw that. Is, I, I, even I think that's a little bit excessive I have to say um, it's not, I there's a, as you said, I, I agree with you on the sort of face to face to everybody's and showbiz run. If somebody wants to pick any of those albums as their, as uh, not just their favorite, cause that's a personal thing, but as sort of the greatest kinks album, it's hard for me to argue against any individual choice. I think they're all right. fantastic. This one, I don't really think anybody except for maybe this person on pitchfork can claim this as the greatest achievement of the kinks as a recording band, but it is a good album. And, mm-hmm. um, especially if you really like the kinks and you've seen reviews of this that are kind of like, yeah, this is, they just didn't, they didn't get it here. Um, give it a shot. Listen to this album with with an open mind and and open ears. And there's they they were an amazing and brilliant band. They could inhabit an amazing variety of musical styles and genres and attitudes and perspectives. And all of that is 
is in this album. It doesn't all work exactly as I think they hoped it would, and it's not all perfect. It is a flawed album. Some of the ways in that John Savage um, mentioned in that that little quote that I read at the very beginning of this pod, um, some of it is spelled out a little too much, but I still think it's absolutely terrific and very, very, very much worth adding to your collection and listening to. And I do find myself listening to it, um, you know, quite a bit. It, it's a mm-hmm. it's a really good album. All right. Well, that's Preservation Act One. Not the first Kinks album I thought I would do for a bonus episode on the podcast, but uh, it, it wouldn't be. The, I'm glad we did. If it, w- it wouldn't really be the Kinks if it were something predictable and and obvious. Exactly. Yeah. And like you said before, we recorded. There are plenty of plenty of people who have already talked about Arthur. Nobody talks about this one. So I agree. So if if you are a um, contributor through herohabit.com. You got this podcast a little bit early. Um, to the rest of you, thanks for downloading. Make sure you swing by herohabit.com and leave some comments uh, in our discussion group and and let us know where we got things right and where we got things wrong. And as always, you can call me at 925-494-1739 and leave your um, thoughts and opinions for any of the stuff on this album or anything we talked about over the course of this podcast or will talk about in the future. And then I can also be reached at kinksandbeats at herohabit.com. Thanks for joining me, Nick. We should do this again. I would love to. Anytime. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And I will talk to you guys next time. This podcast is presented by the Hero Habit Podcast Network. Swing by herohabit.com today to comment on this episode and poke around our growing database of sports and pop culture news, reviews, and collectibles. Herohabit.com. Collect your heroes.